We're going to read some verses from the 14th chapter of John. Let me get into them by telling you a story. I may have told it before. A member of my staff, when I was serving a church in Birmingham, Alabama, was driving home from church with his youngest son. Uh, all of a sudden, the little boy says, Dad, can we go to Egypt someday? Now, you could see right away what the Sunday school lesson was about. It was about God's mighty deliverance of his people from bondage in Egypt. So my friend says, well, well why, why do you want to go to Egypt? And he says, because God is in Egypt. So my friend says, well, that's true, God is in Egypt, but God is in every country. God is in America. God's here in Alabama. God is here in Birmingham. He's, he's everywhere. <clears throat> and the little guy says, yes, but he's bigger in Egypt. <laughs> You know, it's tempting, not just <clears throat> for little kids, for all of us to believe that if you could just get back into Bible times, uh, that God was bigger and closer and more available. In fact, <clears throat> we get thinking that way about Jesus. And we sometimes think within ourselves, if only there was some <clears throat> time machine that would take me back just for a few days to Jesus' day so I could sit with the multitudes and hear his voice, hear him tell the parable of the prodigal son. If I could see him lay his healing hands upon a paralyzed man or the man who was born blind or stand outside of the tomb of Lazarus and say, Lazarus, come forth, uh, if only I could get back in Jesus' day. Well, you know, if you take the lesson we're going to read seriously, we need never long for that because what it's telling us is that we are living in Jesus' day. He's bigger and closer and nearer than he ever was in the days when he walked the roads of Palestine with his friends. Now listen how this works out in the 14th chapter of John. We're not going to read all of it, but you know what it how it begins. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. I can rattle those words off in the King James because I've recited them hundreds of times at burial services. But if you keep reading on, you find Jesus saying something different. Not that it's all in the future, not that he's gone to heaven, he'll come back sometime in the future, but he tells them something's going to happen right now. He says, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm coming to you. In a little while, the world will see me no longer, but you will, and in that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you, those who love me will keep my word, and my Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Jesus is making his home in hearts. His kingdom is in Christ-inhabited hearts. We should have seen this coming at the very beginning of the Gospel of John, where it says, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And what it says literally 
is the Word was made flesh and pitched his tent among us. It sounds like an invasion, as though he went up and came right back secretly, and with those who join him, he is lovingly invading the world with a subversive kingdom of love that is undermining this world's false values of hatred and greed and war. And if we're walking with Jesus, we're dwelling with him in tents. The end is not yet. In the end, the holy city will descend. But for now, we are a part of this invading army. We're sojourning with Jesus in his building of a kingdom of Christ-inhabited hearts. Now listen to this, beginning at the 15th verse. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another ad ad advocate to be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth <clears throat> whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him because he abides with you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you orphaned. I'm coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will. You will see me because I live. You also will live. <clears throat> On that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. They who have my commandments and keep them are those who love me. And those who love me will be loved by my Father, and I will love them and reveal myself to them. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will reveal yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, Those who love me will keep my word, and my Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> well, this is a very special day. A uh, hundred years ago today, at 11 o'clock, the armistice was signed bringing an end to that war, which was supposed to be the end of all wars. And because of that date, we set this as Veterans Day, and we have acknowledged uh, the presence of our veterans in the service. You know, it's a good day to remember why they served, why they fought, why some gave their lives. And it's about freedom. That's the bottom line. It's about a country in which you can think the way you want to think and say what you want to say. Of course, uh, that freedom is too much for some people. They want to think what they want to think and say what they want to say. And then they find that someone thinks differently or says something differently. But that's freedom, and that's what it means to breathe freely. Nothing says it better than those words which we've imprinted on the bulletin, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, uh, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. That welcoming spirit is how we all got here. We're, none of us are Native Americans. We're all the children of immigrants. Uh, there's nothing better than that, and you can't get any greater than that. That's as great as you need to be. I decided, really, to put that, that image of 
Lady Liberty on the front bullet. And that's where this sermon really began with those words of Emma Lazarus that we printed there. And as soon as I did that, I went to my box of old family records that go back to 1869. And one thing I found there was a picture of my grandmother um, just before they left to come to America. My grandfather had come ahead of time. The iron industry was failing in Wales. And now she was coming with seven children. And I wondered what it was like when they sailed into New, uh, New York Harbor and she saw the Statue of Liberty for the first time. It was a young statue then. It had only been there five years. But what did she see? What was she thinking? Now, if you've read one of my little books, you know that my, my grandmother, Jane Evans Morgan, was not only illiterate, she couldn't even sign her name. I have that wedding certificate from 1869, and where she's supposed to sign her name, there's an X, and the county clerk has, has written in uh, Jane Evans, her mark. Well, she didn't have an awful lot to offer this new country. So it's no surprise that those seven children, plus four more who were born after she came here, it's no surprise that none of those 11 children ever finished school. You went to school. As soon as you could go to work, you went to work. And that's what my mother did. She made it to the ninth grade, and then she went to what was called the collar shop, Cluett and Peabody, they eventually made arrow shirts, but my mother worked there as a buttonhole stitcher, and she was working there until three weeks before she turned 41 when my birth ended her career. <laughs> I guess I was a surprise. But notice this, and I know that some of you can tell the same story of your families. You begin with a mother who can't even sign her name. You continue with a generation of children who never finished school, and then you get to the third generation. And this is what is great about America. You get to the third generation, there are three professors teaching at college and graduate school level, two of whom are published authors, one of whom is the editor of an international scientific journey. You have three with engineering degrees and a college librarian. What a great country. And you could tell the same story if I could come down in the congregation with a handheld microphone. You could tell the similar story of how the grandchildren of that first generation realized possibilities of which the first generation could not begin even to dream. Well, of course, it was not that way for everybody. And not everybody arrived and saw the Statue of Liberty. Those who arrived chained, chained in the unspeakable horror of African slave ships. No, for them the golden door was not open. It took centuries just to begin to wedge it open but thank goodness, most of you who are close to my age, we've lived through a time in which we have seen that door open. You know, three of my grandchildren are African-American. 
Two of them are college educated with good jobs and the other is in college moving toward the fulfillment of his dream. They can't change the color of their skin. But we have lived in a day which has moved from the point where they'd have to sit in the back of the bus to a day when they could run for public office or closer to home if they moved into a suburban neighborhood. I know this to be true. There are people who would bend over backwards to make them welcome. That's how far we've come. Some would be neutral, some would wish they hadn't moved in and out there in the world there are people around whom they'll never really be safe, but that's progress. It's the same with the Hispanic community. They came here, most of them, uh, to labor under the, the hot sun, picking what Edward R. Murrow once called uh, the harvest of shame, but look at their children and look at the progress. When I walk into Tutor at the school, there's a young woman sitting there. She is perfectly at home with a computer. And when she was a little girl, she was crawling around along the ground picking cucumbers with her family. That's progress. Forty-one of our students are enrolled in a college entrance program. If they keep up their marks, we will work with them right until they fill out their applications and they're aimed toward colleges where they can get full tuition and full expenses. Not all of them will make it. But these are the children of illiterate people. That's progress. And of course, this kind of progress is driving certain people crazy. They can't stand the thought of this progress. They're flocking to the Ku Klux Klan, to neo-Nazi organizations, to skinhead groups, and there are people in higher places that don't want to welcome these people. But see this for sure. Whatever happens in America, Something bigger is coming. His truth is marching on. With King Jesus, with whom we're sojourning, we're moving toward that day, and no one can stop it when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And in that day, all of God's children will be free and enjoy the greatest golden door. Now take a look at this kingdom that, that we talk about, that Je Jesus is building in this world. It's bigger than the church. You know, no church can contain Jesus. Uh, he's out there at large in the world. And he's not so much concerned with what people believe, but what they do. And wherever there are hearts open to his love and justice, he enters in whatever may be the name by which they understand God. They're members of that kingdom. Faithful Jews are members of that kingdom. In fact, the kingdom is the fulfillment of that promise to Abraham that in his seed all nations shall be blessed. Jesus resides wherever hearts are open to his love. That's why every once in a while you have the strange experience of meeting someone who's not the member of a church, they don't believe the right things, or they don't go to the right church, they're not in the right religion, and yet they are strangely more Christ-like than people in the church. And that's because Christ inhabits their heart. Make no mistake of it, the kingdom is bigger than any nation. It's a universal kingdom. 
no nation has cut a special deal with the kingdom of God. We need to remember that in the early church, it was dangerous to be baptized. To be baptized was to make a protest statement. It was to say to Caesar, you're not our king any longer. We are followers of King Jesus, and our allegiance to him is ultimate, uncompromising, undivided, and unconditional. No ifs, ands, or buts. If he is not Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. Make no mistake of it, our allegiance is unconditional to King Jesus. Now, the church is supposed to be a model of this kingdom. The church can't contain the kingdom. It's bigger than the church. But in the church, we're supposed to be showing the world what the kingdom is like. We're supposed to be the kind of a society in faith in which there is no longer uh, Gentile or Jew, no longer slave nor free, no longer male or female, but we are all one in Christ Jesus. And that means that in the church, people of wealth are of no greater importance than the waiters or the janitors at their country club. <laughs> the fat cats have no special seating in the church. That means also that the people who have been blessed and been able to write a doctorate are not any more special than those who haven't finished school. If the church is the true church, what is true of it is what I saw in the back of a Baptist Sunday School bus that said, in our church, everybody is a somebody. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody can do whatever they want. There, there are varieties of gifts. Not everybody can teach. Not everybody has leadership skills. Not everybody has shepherding skills. And certainly not everybody has singing skills. I certainly would want, not want to go to any church uh, where somebody with a gravelly voice like mine could get into the choir. <laughs> but there is unlimited opportunity to let Christ live within the unique personality and within the unique gifts that are ours. You know, the way I put it is that we can give Jesus a chance to do things that he never had a chance to do in his lifetime. He was limited. It was a short life. He was limited by his own time and culture. But we can bring Jesus into the world again and give him experiences through our lives. And one that I've come to love is Jesus never had a chance to grow old. And in your life and mine, he can experience what it is to live in the vintage years. I used to have a radio program in Pittsburgh, came on late Sunday evening, in which I interviewed people who were doing good stuff with seniors. And uh, I came to realize that the latter years of life are the best. The, the, there are colors you see at sunset that you don't see at any other time. You know, I wish I could walk better, but I wouldn't, for, I wouldn't, give, I wouldn't take any amount of money to go back and be young again. When I think back and remember what a jerk I was, <laughs> I am glad that I survived. And sometimes, you know, when you, you hear Walter Houston singing September song, it almost seems like Jesus is speaking. 
and the years dwindle down to a special few, September, November, and these few special years I'd spend with you, these vintage years I'd spend with you. Let Jesus come in and brighten the sunset years of your life. Give him something that he never experienced in his own time. And here's another one that I bet you've never thought about. Jesus never had the wonderful experience of being married and having a family. Someone says, Jesus married? Why, of course. There is nothing about marriage which would have diminished the divinity of Jesus. He could have married Mary Magdalene. She would have truly been the bride of Christ. And what a heavenly father he would have been. But there wasn't time. He had a mission. But in your family life, in your marriage, in the raising of your children, you can let Christ have the experience which he never had in the short time of his life. The possibilities are endless. All kinds of human experiences in which we are bringing Jesus back into the world and letting him glorify God through our lives. Make sure that you understand that that's the only thing that matters. The only thing that finally matters in life is that you be, as much as you can, Christ-like. It's the only thing that's going to last. You're going to leave everything else behind. And the only thing you can take into the world to come is a Christ-inhabited heart. That's your real treasure. So don't live treasuring your trash and trashing your treasure. Life is for Christ-likeness. Make sure you have thrown your heart fully open and that you're traveling, sojourning with King Jesus as he is building the kingdom of Christ-inhabited hearts.